Now we turn our page to the psalm of the day, Psalm 138, which I'll also use as my sermon text for this morning. We read it responsibly. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hand. The Old Testament lesson for this, the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, is taken from the book of Isaiah, the 51st chapter. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people. And give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. The epistle lesson is from Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33, going through Romans 12, verse 8. O oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And so let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. The word extreme is a very popular word these days. We talk of extreme sports. Or we describe some people as extreme minimalists, for they throw everything out. Meteorologists warn of extreme weather. Social media, such as Twitter and Facebook, censor people and organizations that they deem as espousing extreme positions. For months, governors have pronounced we must put extreme measures in place to restrict the spread of COVID-19. And the media, well, they often like to label some people as right-wing extremists. Whatever the word means in each of these connections, extreme refers to something that is not bland or middle of the road, but rather pushing the limits, situated on the edges. So it might be surprising to you to hear me say that we can add this adjective extreme, that word extreme, before God and before our worship. Yes, we worship an extreme God. And he expects us to worship him in an extreme way. Listen to this ancient hymn of the faith from Psalm 138 as it describes our extreme God and our extreme worship. You won't find the word extreme there, though. David writes, I give you thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called you, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand, well, it delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, it endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The first word in, this, in the Hebrew text of Psalm 138 is, I thank you. The, the psalm is, is calling for extreme worship. Extreme worship of God. It's, this is no flippant, well, thanks, God. But it's a deep, heartfelt, bottom-of-the-heart kind of thanks. The psalmist is urging us to make God the center of our life, 
not just someone or something that exists on the periphery of our life. Our whole of life is to be an expression of thanksgiving to our God. Jesus expresses this sentiment this way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. St. Paul urges us in the epistle lesson for today to, in view of God's mercy, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your true and proper worship, St. Paul writes. We are to be living sacrifices. That's pretty extreme, don't you think? To... Be extreme worshipers of God, though, presents a problem for us. Our sinful heart, our sinful body, our sinful mind, well, it refuses. They refused or they resist worshiping and serving God wholeheartedly. Half-heartedly? Maybe. When it fits into my schedule? Oh, possibly. Serving the Lord? Well, if it's convenient for me to do so. And for most people... The exhortation to worship and serve the Lord, their God, from the bottom of their heart is met with an obstinate, I'm not worshiping or serving any God. I'm here to live for myself. In their book, and I've referenced this book before in my, one of my sermons, but this, in this book, God, Good Faith, Being a Christian, When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons observe, and I quote, Many historic Christian beliefs and practices are considered to be extreme by large portions of Americans, especially among non-Christians. For example, two out of five adults believe it is extreme to try to convert others to their faith. Sixty percent of all adults in America and 83 percent of atheists and agnostics believe evangelism, one of the central actions of Christian conviction, is extreme. A, silent, a slim majority says that holding the belief that same-sex relationships are morally wrong is extremist. Two out of five adults believe it's extreme to quit a good-paying job to pursue mission work in another country. In this same study, some Americans even listed that they thought it was extreme if you donated to a religious cause, re- donated money to a religious cause. Or if you read your Bible in silent and in a public area. Some even listed going to church as extreme. Or volunteering in the name of some religion as extreme. According to their research, three quarters of all Americans and nine out of ten Americans with no faith affiliation agree with the statement, being religiously extreme is a threat to society. It's no wonder, then, that the Atlantic observes, in an age of religious terrorism, extremists is too damaging a word to be tossed around with such little discretion. When society slaps the E word on something, it marks it for marginalization. And if the data is right, tens of millions of religious Americans may be at risk of being ostracized, sidelined, or banished from social acceptability because of their beliefs extremists. That's probably how, as according to these stats, how many people view us. 
You see, our tendency is, because of our sinful flesh and our desire to conform to the world, is to downplay our extreme view or our extreme life of worship. To soften the psalmist's call to live a life of thanksgiving with our whole heart or to sacrificially live for the Lord, to to make Him the core of our existence. For fear of being labeled extremist, whether it's from our friends, some family members, co-workers, classmates, whoever, we allow ourselves to be marginalized. We allow ourselves, and we even bind to the idea that our faith is a private, personal matter. And so playing right into the hands of our societal bullies, we gather quietly in our sanctuaries and, we, and in our homes for worship and our prayers, and we remain silenced in the public square, and we're afraid and fearful of speaking the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet the psalmist in our text says, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart before the gods, small g gods, I will sing your praise. You see, emboldened by the steadfast love of God, King David and the nation of Israel have experienced and inspired God's answer to to his petitions, to their petitions. And the psalmist, King David, stands face to face with the might of the heathen world who worships and serves a variety of false gods in the antagonism of the world towards him will not silence David. It will not shake his fidelity to God. And so David worships. David bows and kneels to only one, and that is his God who created him and redeemed him. David confesses his faith. David serves unashamedly. David trusts implicitly. And instead of retreating and cowering, David prays, may all the kings of the earth praise you, Lord, when they hear what you have decreed. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. King David exhorts you and me to live life similarly. Michael Frost says, A church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but the sacrifices of of many. In the epistle lesson that I read just a few moments ago, Paul speaks of this extreme life of worship, this extreme life of serving our Lord, and and he speaks of it in really quite ordinary ways. Let's go back to the epistle lesson. For there Paul writes, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy in proportion to our faith, if it's service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And going on in that text, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affliction. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 
This is an example of how we worship God in extreme ways. We simply live the way that God would have us live, and we do so with zealousness, with, with, with a desire to, to serve Him with our whole heart, soul, body, and mind. And it's done in such easy, simple ways, really. Nothing extreme about what really Paul writes there. To love other people, to pray continually, to use the gift that God has given to you or the gifts that God has given to you to enrich the, the fellowship of the believers and to reach out and to share that love with other people who are, who are not yet believers in Christ. And as we do so, and as we serve in this way, and as we worship God in this way, as we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to our God, we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I realize that I've just spent probably the last seven or eight minutes, but who's counting, right? Unpacking David's words of what it means to give thanks with our, to God with our whole heart. To live an extreme life of worship or thanksgiving, yeah, that may make us unpopular. It may even turn some people off. It might even be a little threatening to their way of life. and They might even threaten our life. But we're to call people to repentance, just as we are called to repentance. We're to help people see their life of idolatry as God has helped us see our life of idolatry, those things that we make our gods that we would prefer to serve, those things that we fear, love, and trust in more than God himself. And so, yes, we might be extremists, but yet the Lord calls us to serve and to love him in extreme ways, Because you see, that's who he is. He's an extreme God. The Bible speaks of God in terms of extremes. He's the the ruler of the universe, and yet he's the servant of all. He is eternal, and yet he is conceived in the womb of a woman. He is omnipotent, and yet he's dependent on his mother's breast milk for sustenance. He hates sin, but yet he loves and even dies for the sinner. He's a judge, and yet he is the pardon. He is, as pictured in Psalm 22, holy, enthroned on on the praises of Israel, and yet he is a worm and not even human. All the galaxies of the universe cannot contain him, and yet he resides in the heart of everyone who believes in Christ promises eternal life to everyone who believes in Jesus as the Savior. And then the other extreme, well, he also assures people that if they don't believe in Christ, they will experience eternal death. Our ancient hymn of the faith that we're looking at today, Psalm 138, describes God in some of these extremes. In verse 2 it says, I will bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. For you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. When I called you, you answered me, you greatly emboldened me. Although the Lord, Lord, verse 6, though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. God's love for us, for all humanity, is extreme. For it's unfailing. 
Max Lucado, speaking of God's unfailing love, says, and I quote, you need not win his love. You already have it. He sees the worst in you, and he loves you still. Your sins of tomorrow and failings of the future will not surprise him. He sees them now. Every day, indeed, of your life has passed before his eyes and been calculated in his decision. He knows you better than you know you and has reached his verdict. He loves you still. No discovery will disillusion him. No rebellion will dissuade him. He loves you with an everlasting love. God's love, never failing, never ending. See, God can love us in this extreme fashion because he took extreme measures to save us from our enemies, from the curse of sin, from death's eternal consequences, and from the conniving ways of the devil. I mean, think of the ways that God went to extreme measures to share his loving kindness with us. Well, he who sits at the right hand of the Father, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became incarnate. He descended his throne in heaven and he came to this earth and he became flesh. He was, as I said a few moments ago, born in the womb of a virgin. He, he nursed at his mother's breast. He, he lived the life of a child and he grew up as a teenager and a, and a young man. That sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? For God to become human. But not only that, but then we read of his ministry. We hear of Jesus' ministry and he pushed the boundaries, didn't he? He challenged the elite. He challenged the religious establishment. He pointed out their self-righteousness. And it took extreme measures for him to save us. He had to live that perfect life of obedience that you and I could never live. He had to have a constant battle day by day with the devil who was trying to turn him away from his mission. And Jesus, yes, he went to extreme measures, didn't he, by suffering on a cross. Not just the pain and agony of, a, of crucifixion, but he suffered even experiencing his father's wrath and anger for our sin. Even the father went to extreme measures in that he turned his back on his son when his son died on the cross for our sins. And Christ cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's pretty extreme, wouldn't you say? And then Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, well, he died. He died. His, his heart stopped beating. He was placed in a tomb, and he laid there for three days. He experienced death for you and me. That's extreme. And yet, because of his extreme love and sacrifice for us, you and I know that we are forgiven of our sins. We know that God loves us with an everlasting love. It's never failing. It's never ending. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we earn it. It's not that he just accepts us for who we are without some form of repentance. But he calls us to repent, to believe in Christ as our Savior. And as we believe in Christ, all of these blessings that Christ has won for us on the cross and with his death and resurrection, God gives to us. God's grace, it's extreme. His undeserved favor, it's extreme. The psalmist also says that God gives us his truth. His word is also unfailing. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I find all of this fake news stuff kind of tiresome. It's tiresome because, honestly, it's sometimes hard to be- know who to believe, who to trust. I mean, we have one expert say one thing and another expert say another thing, and they're on two completely different poles. It's like they're on different planets. And we have contradictory reports and contradictory recommendations. God's Word isn't like that. God's Word is true. God's Word is eternal. It's unchanging. And we can trust His Word. When we open up our Bibles and read His Word, it is the Word of God given to us. And it's God's Word given to us so that He might reveal to us His extreme love for you and me. He wants us to know that He went to great lengths to rescue you and me so that we might have an eternal relationship with Him to enjoy His love and forgiveness and peace and joy here in this life and for all eternity. These things have been written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in His name. That's why Jesus revealed His Word to Peter and to the other apostles. That's why He sent Peter and the apostles out into the world. That's why He sends you and me to go and tell others of this wonderful news, this truth of God's Word. Because it's the one thing that we can truly believe. That's pretty extreme, wouldn't you say? But not only does God give us his word, not only does God promise his unfailing love, but he also promises to be with us in the extreme circumstances of our life. Listen to verse 7. And as you listen to verse 7, see if it reminds you of another psalm written by David. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes, and with your right hand you save me. The Lord will vindicate me. Your love, Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. When I started to read verse 7 and 8, was there a psalm that came to your mind? I see you, Margie, nodding your head. What did you think of? Though I walk in the midst of trouble... The same word for walk that's used here in Psalm 138 is the same word used in Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You and I, we've gone through many things in our life that are troublesome. Dark days, sorrowful days, unsettling days an unknown future. And here the psalmist reminds us that even when we're faced with extreme circumstances in life, who's there with us? I walk with you, says our God. I walk with you in the midst of your trouble. I will preserve your life. There is nothing in all of this creation that can separate you from from loving me. There's nothing at all. There's nothing that can create a wall, a barrier between me and you. I am with you in all the days of your trouble. And I will stretch out my hand against your enemies, against your foes. And in me, in Christ, you will be more than conquerors. So we can be assured, can't we? We can be assured as we go through these troubling times that the extreme love of our Father is with us always. And that our Savior, who went to extreme ways to save us 
is walking with us day by day. The psalmist says in verse 3, on that day I called you, on that day of trouble I called you, and you answered me. You increased the strength of my soul. One more way in which God is extreme. Not only is God's loving kindness unfailing, as we heard in verse 2, but his loving kindness is also eternal. Your steadfast love, Lord, it endures forever. Your steadfast love for me, O Lord, it endures forever. Your steadfast love for my family, it endures forever. Your steadfast love for this congregation and for all the Christian churches, steadfast love endures forever. It's not only unfailing, but it endures forever. You and I will always live and abide in the enduring, the eternal, everlasting love of God. Oh, what security and hope that this truth brings to our troubled hearts. And so Psalm 138, this ancient hymn of faith, it kind of starts off a little bit, well, making us feel a little uneasy. For it calls us to an extreme act of worship, to offer up our whole hearts from the bottom of our heart, to worship and rejoice and celebrate God, to put God in the center of our life and not just on the outer edges of life. That's pretty intimidating. It's really impossible for us to do in many ways. And yet as we go on in this psalm, we see that this extreme God, well, he has an unfailing love for us, a steadfast love that endures forever. And he went to extreme methods, extreme ways, in order to bring us into his fold, to forgive us of those times that we don't place him at the center of our lives. When we do put him on the periphery, and he brings us in, he says, I forgive you. I love you. My steadfast love is yours forever. And then he sends us out to share that love, that extreme love in just ordinary ways as we love and we serve one another using the gifts that he's given us, doing it in the name of Christ, the Son of the living God, our Savior. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.